Well, good morning, church family. Um, I must confess, uh, we are in unique times, and this is quite a unique experience for me. Um, I'm standing here in my kitchen, and uh, I, I, I truly miss all of you. It's such a strange feeling not being together in the same room physically on a Sunday morning. Um, many of you know that um, amidst all of this, Sarah and I have just come back from being in Europe for around 12 days. And so we've actually had to self-isolate um, ourselves. And so, again, we just, we just, these are such interesting times and we're watching um, all of this unfold in real time. But we just want you to know as a church family, um, we love you. We have been praying for you and we want to care for you well during this time. We know there might be a, a lot of confusion during this time, a lot of unknowns for all of us, but we're trusting in the Lord. And I just want to remind you that while you're likely sitting at home on your couch watching this right now, um, the Lord God Almighty is still seated on his throne. And he is sovereign over all of this. And we have a God that we can run to and trust in, a God who's so faithful to us in our times of need. And uh, we want to be able to serve um, you as we think about what it means to be the church body. And uh, we want to reflect the kindness of God um, that he's shown to us towards one another. And so we just want to let you know as we begin the Sunday morning service, um, you'll already have noticed probably on the platform that we're using, there's some helpful um, tabs or links that you can click on above that'll um, drive you back to our website. You can connect, connect uh, click on the connect card there and let us know that you are with us this morning. Um, you can send us a prayer request. Um, let us continue to pray for, pray for you during this time. You'll also notice that there's an opportunity to give and we've just kind of uh, refined how you can give um, electronically, virtually on our website. And so we just want to make it as easy as possible for you to give. We know many of you have been cash givers and, um, and uh, we want to just be able to serve you and provide you an opportunity to continue to give to the Lord's work here at the church as an act of worship unto him. Uh, we also want to let you know a few things. Um, first, uh, we want to provide care, specific care for some of those of you who are in need. We know that this crisis, this pandemic is potentially causing a lot of problems. So while many of you may need prayer, um, some of you need actual physical help. Um, maybe it's simply with running to the grocery store or uh, running some errands or potentially maybe you even need some financial help. Maybe you found yourself without a job and in some financial strain. And if you're not in a small group, um, we provided a link for you to click on so that you can let us know that you need help and we wanna make sure that we get back to you and serve you as best as we possibly can and be a blessing to you um, during this, again, um, interesting and unique season. We are trusting that this is uh, a season that's gonna be short-lived, but um, we're, not, we're not sure uh, when this is going to end. So we are preparing as a church. We wanna let you know too that we've been thinking hard, we've been working hard behind the scenes. Um, we're gonna be doing online basically everything for the next um, foreseeable um, future. Um, we, we are looking at doing virtual groups, uh, small groups. We're looking right now at unrolling a virtual youth group, um, prayer meetings, and we're going to be providing you with lots more information in the coming days that will um, hopefully serve you and make sure we can continue to connect in community. It's so vitally important that right now we continue to draw near to the Lord and we draw near um, to one another and seek to serve one another. So we want to make that available and we want to um, help facilitate that. So just be aware that that's coming. Um, you can tune into this site. You'll notice the link on our website um, every Sunday from now on. The goal 
for us is to be gathering together at the same time. We can't be together physically right now. We understand that. But we can certainly unite our hearts and minds together spiritually. Um, at, a, at a unique time on a Sunday morning, we can gather, so to speak, and we can call out to the Lord. We can sit under His Word. We can sing praises to Him. We can continue to give. We can worship the Lord in all of these ways. And uh, even next week, I'm already looking at planning a communion service that we can participate in. So you might want to get some things on hand, some grape juice and some bread, and get ready uh, to do that as well next week with us. For now, we're going to jump into God's Word. I think that's all of the preliminaries, and uh, I hope that helps you just think about what we're doing and, and where we're moving in the near future. But right now, we want to dive into God's Word, and I want to encourage you to take your Bible right now and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, we're going to keep cruising through the book of 1 Peter now. Um, I want to read to you from 1 Peter, but before I do that, I want to simply pray. Um, I trust that you feel the need for God uh, to minister even through these unique means that we're using. Um, I was reminded this week um, that it's a strange thing. I'm preaching to a camera. I'm preaching to you through a camera. Um, I can't see you. I can see you in my mind's eye. I can visualize our church family and so many of your faces, but this is so different. And yet at the same time, I was reminded this week as I studied and I thought about what this was going to be like, um, our first online kind of official service together, I was reminded that um, the Word of God is powerful and uh, the Word of God transcends all kinds of boundaries and obstacles. And so I'm praying, I have been all week and I've been praying um, even this morning that God would use His Word in a powerful way, ways that we cannot yet um, uh, see or anticipate. But uh, because we believe that God's Word is what He says it is, that His Word is like a, a hammer that can smash through the most difficult of obstacles. His Word is like a fire that can burn through um, the greatest challenges we might face. God's Word is a light and a lamp unto our feet. God's Word is a double-edged sword that pierces right to the very depths of our hearts. It's God's Word that we desperately need, combined with the power of God's Spirit. And I'm praying that God's Word will be powerful for us this morning. So let's pray that together. Let's unite our hearts together. And let's ask God to do what only He can do. Father in heaven, we bow before You. And God, we say, hallowed be Your name. God, You are great and worthy to be praised. You are right now seated on Your throne. God, You rule and reign supreme. And it's our desire, Lord, to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long, Lord, for your will to be done in this moment in our lives. We pray, Father, that your word would speak so powerfully to our hearts. We confess to you right now, Lord, that we need you. We so desperately need you. Um, we love you so much. We're so thankful for the church. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your spirit that dwells within us. And we pray, God, that your spirit would have his way among us, even though we're spread out, Lord, across the Durham region and maybe even beyond. Father, your word is powerful and your spirit unites us. So, Father, we surrender ourselves to you now. We submit ourselves to your word and we ask, God, that you would bear much fruit in our time together this morning. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he comes to this final place in his letter where he talks about suffering. And it's fitting that we are talking about suffering this morning in light of all that's going on. 
But here's what he says um, to Christians, to the church. He says this in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Again, in this final section and final statement on suffering, we must grasp Peter's point. Peter wants to teach us how to make the most out of our trials. He doesn't want us to waste our trials. He wants us to receive from these trials everything that God has designed and planned for them to accomplish in our lives. And so to do that, there are four things we must evaluate and we must come to grips with in our life. Here's how we make the most of our trials. First, notice this, we need to expect it. It's normal. That's how you make the most out of any trial. You need to expect it and understand that trials are a normal part of life. They're a normal part of human existence. And specifically for the Christian, we're told from cover to cover in the scriptures that trials are used by God for a very specific purpose in our life. We, we shouldn't be shocked by this. So look at what he says again in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, this, this shouldn't shock us. We ought to expect this. This is what Peter has been telling us throughout this letter. Why? Because of our theology of trials. Because we understand that our trials unite us to Jesus Christ. We share in Christ's sufferings, as he says here in verse 12. If Christ suffered, we too must suffer. And as we've seen throughout this letter, this is the pattern of the Christian life that's been laid out by Jesus Christ. First suffering and then comes glory. You'll notice our, our theology of trials is bolstered here. He chooses this word, fiery trials. It's a reminder that trials are intended by God to in one sense, yes, be painful, but to be purifying. That sense of the refiner's fire is built into this concept again. In other words, Christians' sufferings are not a sign of God's absence, but consider this, loved ones, they're a sign of His purifying presence in our lives. This theme is standard in the New Testament. God uses the trials of life to strengthen the character of believers and to make them fit for His presence. Romans 5, 3-5, James 1, 2-4. And here, Peter uses the word um, to test you. This word test, again, it links us back to uh, chapter 1, verse 6. There, if you'll recall, 
When Peter began speaking of trials, he said this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The same word translated trials is found in both of these places. Again, it reminds us that suffering is allowed by God and ordained by God to refine the faith of His children. Again, let me just remind you, these are fiery trials. This phrase is actually found in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21. The psalmist, or excuse me, um, the author of Proverbs writes these words. He says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. This idea of being tested by his praise can either mean um, that it's the praise we receive for enduring through a trial, that we will be praised because we made it, we persevered to the end through the trial. We will be rewarded, we will be crowned, however you want to, to look at that. Or it could simply mean that this is the, the praise that we give, what we choose to praise in the midst of suffering and what that reveals about us. Both of these make sense based on the context. But the idea here is that if we endure trials, then there is some kind of praise that springs forth from it. Either praise that is given to us by God because of His kindness and grace that is evidenced in our lives and in our endurance, or praise that comes from our lips in the midst of suffering, where we can turn and say, God, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our suffering does not destroy us, but it does purify us. Yet we can see why suffering took Peter's audience by surprise. The church in the first century had never been cultural outsiders. This was a new experience for those who had embraced the gospel. They had never faced this kind of irrational prejudice. They'd never experienced this kind of social mocking and scoffing. Recently, they had turned to God. And so they might have expected his favor to lead to a, a much easier life. It's the kind of gospel that so many people believe even today. And are taught today that if you just turn to Jesus, then everything in your life is going to be so much easier. It's going to be your best life. Everything's going to go smoothly for you with Jesus by your side. But when life got harder, they were surprised. It's interesting how we can become so easily surprised. And I would suggest to you that when it comes to suffering for the sake of Jesus, when it comes to social ostracization or even persecution, the only reason we are surprised in those circumstances is if, is if we don't really understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew wrote these words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus was not unclear about what it meant to be a follower of him, the cost, 
the, the scorn and the ostracization and the persecution that would follow his disciples. Right now, the world has been taken by surprise. I was watching earlier this week some um, news uh, press conferences and uh, just reminded again, I was watching some of the experts, both political and medical, talk about how um, that this, this virus, uh, COVID-19, has really taken us by surprise. That The rapid pace at which it's spreading, um, the rate of death that they've seen, all of this, they said, just kind of, it just came so quickly and caught us by surprise. But I want to remind you, church, that this pandemic did not catch God by surprise, not in the slightest The church throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, has seen much worse than this. It's important in these kind of circumstances, when we watch the world in chaos and confusion, and maybe when we're caught by surprise by not even suffering for the sake of Jesus, but by suffering in general, suffering on a global scale like we're seeing right now, all we need to do is look back across the ages, and we can see that this is simply a part of the ebbs and flows of human history. And the church has has weathered these kind of storms before. They've weathered the the Spanish influenza. They've weathered the plagues. They've weathered famine. They've weathered all kinds of of sickness and disease and persecution and martyrdom. And yet, I want to remind you, church, here we still stand. The church of Jesus Christ is built on a firm foundation. Your faith is on a firm firm foundation. It is built upon the foundation of God's word and the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear in these moments. So here is the big question for us. How are we responding? How are we responding in the midst of of this trial that this world finds itself in, that we find ourselves in? Maybe you find yourself in a different kind of trial. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe there's a, 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 a physical or a spiritual crisis that you're encountering right now. But for all of us, for sure, we can say this, that all of us are facing the same kind of crisis that the world is facing. How are you responding in the midst of this trial? You can respond in one of two ways. You can respond with fear or you can respond with faith. Fear is the result of fixing our eyes upon our circumstances and being overtaken by them. Faith is the result of fixing our eyes upon our Creator and being overtaken by Him. Loved ones, we need to fix our eyes firmly upon our God and our King, the one who is seated upon the throne, who reigns victorious. We find great hope when we keep our gaze fixed upon Him. How do we make the most of our trial? Secondly, notice this. We need to enjoy it, its approval. Enjoy it? Yes, yes, enjoy it. I I don't mean enjoy the actual trial itself, or excuse me, the suffering itself. That would be sick. That would be morbid. But we need to learn to enjoy what God is doing in it and through it. Peter says, These words, again, in verse 13 and 14, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know, it's an interesting thing to consider rejoicing in the midst of a trial. 
so often when we encounter trials of various kinds, whether they're persecution or, or otherwise, we find ourselves asking the question, why, instead of the question, what? We say things like, God, why? Why me? Why, why am I having to endure this? Or why hasn't this ended? Or why couldn't this happen to somebody else? Instead, we ought to learn to ask the question, God, what? What are you doing? What are you wanting to show me? What are you wanting to teach me? What are you wanting to tell me, God, about who you are and who I am? You see, what God is wanting to tell us so often is that the trial in our lives is in many ways trying to affirm God's approval of us as his children. And so there's a sense in which we, we ought to enjoy that when we see ourselves wrestling through these trials well, when we see ourselves suffering well for Jesus, we ought to remind ourselves, this is God's way of saying, hey, you're one of mine. You're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. And look, you're suffering just like me because you're related to me. This is such a precious truth that we need to allow to sink deeply into our hearts. Here we see that the first part of, of the verse here emphasizes that believers should rejoice. They should rejoice now if they suffer for Christ's sake. And the reason is actually given to us in the second part here. He says that we are to rejoice here and now because of our future joy. It's such a fascinating theological truth that he presents to us in this passage that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's a future day. If we do it now, then it means we'll do it then. Here's what this also means. If we don't do it now, we will not do it then. Believers should rejoice even now in suffering so that we may be overjoyed when we see him in the future. It's amazing how a little bit of suffering can actually um, heighten our, our future joy. I think of, of the athlete or the soldier or the farmer who puts in the hard work and the many long hours of suffering up front. It's, it's hard toil. It's, it's, it's hard and challenging work by the sweat of the brow. And, it, and there's aches and there's pains, there's fatigue, there's exhaustion. It requires immense uh, discipline and focus. And yet, it's not until later when the athlete competes in the competition and wins the prize, when the farmer reaps the harvest of all of his hard work, or when the soldier fights the battle and wins the war. We understand what this looks like. And if you've ever gone to the gym, you know that you're suffering and you're trying to enjoy the suffering as much as possible, knowing that it's going to lead, hopefully, to something greater, to a greater joy, so that when you look at the before and after photos, you can see a visible difference, that all of your hard work was worth it, because in the end, what it produced was something great. Rejoicing in present suffering is mandated so that believers will have joy in God's presence on the day of judgment. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, he says, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, Jesus does the same thing. He links a present suffering and rejoicing within it to a future day when he will return in the fullness of his glory and his kingdom. On that day, all of the pain that we have gone through will be worth it. All that we have suffered will only heighten our joy when our Savior returns. He says here in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Look at these words, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is such a a fascinating statement he makes that really, again, just bolsters this idea of God's affirmation of you as his child and the approval of you as his child, that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you indicates this unusual fullness of God's presence. It's the presence of God's Holy Spirit to bless you, the presence of his spirit to strengthen you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of of your struggle. It's a foretaste of the heavenly glory that awaits all those who are in Christ Jesus. These words are actually drawn from the Old Testament. Peter Peter is echoing the words from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where Isaiah gives this messianic prophecy, and he's speaking of the branch um, of Jesse, out of Jesse, and he's already says, he says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And in that context, it's speaking specifically of Jesus, of the Messiah. But what Peter does is, is so incredible. He takes this promise that was given to the Messiah, but he, he helps us understand that there's a bigger picture in mind. Peter sees this messianic blessing extended also to all of those who bear the name of this Messiah. Because we are in him, we receive this same blessing, this anointing of the Holy Spirit, this unique presence of God in us. The word that he uses here, the glory, the spirit of glory in this verse, it suggests another Old Testament theme as well. The New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament cloud of God's glory. In the Old Testament, the the Shekinah glory of God came and rested in the Holy of Holies. It filled the temple. Here, what we see is that Peter is saying that this glory is now finding its fuller fulfillment as it comes to rest in the new temple of God, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God dwells among the church. God's seal is upon you, loved one. We are called to rejoice, yes, even in the midst of suffering. So you say, how do I enjoy the suffering? How do I enjoy God in the midst of the suffering? Well, do you remember the early church uh, as they started out in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when they began to suffer for Jesus? It says this, that then they left the, the 
presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see, that's the key right there. They understood that they were linked to Jesus and that this was simply a marker of that. It was affirming their union with Christ. And this was cause for great celebration. Christian, this is why Paul and Silas could sit in prison and sing hymns while they were shackled together in unbelievably wretched conditions. They knew what this meant. This meant they were gods. And that God had them in his hand. We are blessed if we suffer for God's principles, and we are blessed if we suffer for God's Son. The key to all of this, then, is understanding that we need to respond properly to the trials that we find ourselves in, especially trials that are the result of following Jesus, specifically those trials, but but broadly speaking, every trial we face. We are blessed if we suffer for Jesus. So church, let me encourage you. Say, how do I, how do I suffer well? How do I not waste my trial? Let me tell you this. Um, fight the urge to do what your flesh wants, wants to most naturally do, which is to grumble and to complain and to doubt and to take matters into your own hand when you find yourself in the midst of a trial. We are inclined to deny God's, God's kindness and God's grace and God's presence And we are inclined to find ourselves in a place of self-sufficiency instead of God dependency. Resist the urge to do that. Stop doing that immediately. Like the early church, learn instead to actually rejoice. Replace your grumbling and complaining with rejoicing. It is, after all, God's approval and affirmation of you. You say, how can I do that? Here's how you can do that. Train your heart to sing his praise in the midst of whatever trial you find yourself in. Throw on your favorite worship album or your favorite worship song and begin to sing your heart out. I mean, get in your car, shut the door, go for a drive and sing. Sing like there's nobody around. Sing like you're in the presence of your king. Let your heart be filled with reasons to praise God because there are oh so many reasons to praise him in the midst of our trial. He is good and he knows what he's doing and we can trust him. Let me encourage you to sing specifically about the suffering and glory of Jesus. You see, when we sing the story of the gospel, we're singing our story too. When we sing about his suffering and his glory and victory, we sing about our suffering and our glory as well. We're reminded of the theology of the New Testament that suffering comes and then glory. So church, enjoy it, its approval. Third, let me encourage you to not waste your trial by doing this. Embrace it. It's effectual. Verses 15 through 18, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as um, uh, an evildoer or as a meddler. Not all suffering is equal, in other words. If you suffer for your own sin, that one's on you. Don't try and pin that on the sovereignty of God. That's all your responsibility. But... He says this, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian for following Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, as we've just seen as the early um, disciples did. 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is such a fascinating portion of this letter. Again, Peter reminds us that not all suffering is equal. But when we suffer for Jesus... It is actually undeserved in one sense. We haven't done anything sinful or wrong or evil. It's, it's not that we've provoked the world around us to persecute us, but simply because of our union with Christ. And it requires a kind of supernatural courage and commitment. It requires the presence of the Spirit of God within us to respond the right way. And every one of us is susceptible to being embarrassed or ashamed of Jesus. I think there are times in every one of our lives where we have been asked if we're a Christian. Maybe Christianity was in the process of being mocked or belittled, and, and maybe somebody turned to us and said, you don't believe that, do you? And in fear, in a lack of faith, we didn't stand up for Jesus, or we even, like Peter, denied Jesus. No, I don't, I don't believe that. Throughout the years, there have been those whose lives have been on the line, and they've been asked to recant and some, in moments of fear for their own lives, have been ashamed of Jesus. And there are stories of those who denied Jesus in the moment, but then came running back in, in tears and saying uh, that they have denied their Lord, and they're, now they're willing to stand unashamed for the gospel, and they're willing to suffer and even die for His name. It was a kind of judgment that is taking place in our suffering it says here, and this kind of judgment is actually directed towards believers. You'll notice he says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That is very specific language. And again, that pulls us back into the Old Testament where time and time again, we read that the household of God refers to the Old Testament people of God. Specifically, it refers to God's house, God's temple. It's interesting how um, this suffering is intended to impact God's church. We need to understand, as has been noted throughout history, loved ones, that persecution is one of the ways that God not only purges and refines the church, it's the way He extends and advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel or the seed of the church. The more and more the church is persecuted, the more and more God uses that and that testimony of those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb to advance the gospel in power across the face of this earth. Trials have an interesting way of judging us. Suffering has a way of judging us. It's interesting how this particular trial that we are finding ourselves in now with the coronavirus has cut off so much of what we enjoy in this world. I mean, it's such a bizarre time. Again, I, I'm in self-isolation as I preach this message. I've hardly been outside of my house. Everything is, is shutting down. Everything's on hold. The economy is coming in one sense to a bit of a standstill in some ways. This is, this is unique. I mean, we can't go out to malls and shop. 
We can't go to movie theaters. We can't go to sporting events. We can't even gather in our small group context and even as a local church. Trials purge things from our lives. They strip things away from us, things that we've relied upon, things that we've treasured, things that we find joy and satisfaction in. They purge things from our lives, and we need to see that this is the intention of God. When it comes to His judgment, God is is judging in the sense that He wants to purify His people. He wants to strip us of all sin. He wants to strip us of all the, the lesser joys and the idols that we have run to and clung to and loved and bowed to instead of Him. You see, why? Because God wants us to find that He is the treasure our hearts seek that he's the one we desperately need, that if we would lose all of this world, if we lost our, our jobs and our reputation and we lost everything this world had to offer, that would be perfectly fine because we had everything we need. We had him. And this is what Peter has been trying to communicate so often throughout this letter. We are sojourners and strangers. This world is not our home. The fire of God's judgment that we endure here and now is not the fire of the judgment of His wrath that will one day, listen, consume the unbelieving. It is the purging fire of His discipline. It is intended for our purification, for our good, and for His glory. One day, listen, God will destroy all sin from His new creation. And He has begun that work in us now. And if the judgment that we experience now, presently, as the the people of God, think about this, is a serious thing. That's what he says here. If it's a serious thing for the family of God, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I mean, think about it. If we have to suffer and endure some things now for Jesus that are hard, imagine what those who rebel against God, who refuse to obey and believe the gospel, will one day endure when they meet him on that final day. He alludes here to Proverbs 11.31. He says, If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's hard, the scriptures teach us. This is, this is fascinating theologically to think about. It's hard even for believers to be saved. God must, even right now, preserve the elect for salvation. Matthew chapter 24, verses 22 through 24 says this. uh, The word of God tells us repeatedly that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14. Matthew chapter 7 says this, that the, the gate is narrow. It's hard. And you see suffering in the Christian life and suffering in the context of the local church, it divides those who truly call on Jesus from those who simply dabble in religion for a season. It sifts people. It puts them through that sift. And what we find out is that those who fall through the sift are those who are not really of God, but those who remain, they are of God. Suffering clarifies things. If we endure 
at a cost. It shows that we know the Lord and we are preparing daily to meet him and that we are getting ready to render an account for our life. You see, to suffer now for Jesus is better by far than to suffer in eternity without Jesus. That's what Peter is saying to us. Just imagine, you know, this is nothing compared to what many are going to suffer on that day. And suffering now reminds us that this world, again, it's not our home. It's good. It's good that we, we suffer sometimes because our fingers are being peeled off of clinging so firmly to this world as if this was the end all and be all. God loves to come along and shake the foundations underneath us to remind us that there is an unshakable foundation that awaits us in our heavenly city. This past week, I received an email from Dave Harvey. He's the, the president of the Great Commission Collective, our fellowship of churches. And, uh, and he, he wrote this email. And part of this email, he was addressing just this idea. Listen to this. Here's what he wrote. He says this, By introducing fragility, pandemics reassert eternity. As priorities shift, we slow enough to hear the toll of a bell from the city whose architect and builder is God. It reminds us that we sojourn in the Shadowlands where life is brittle, where normal tips over all too easily. He says, if we dare to look, the coronavirus points forward to our true home and our forever family. Just imagine, he says, resurrected bodies impervious to infection. Let the anticipation fire us to serve Christ today with eyes on eternity. Yes, yes and amen. That's what our hearts ought to say. That ought to fire us up to live now for Jesus Christ. Lord, strip away all earthly idols. Strip away all desires for sin and selfishness. God, free us from that, that we might serve you faithfully in light of eternity with you. And may, may God give us a gospel urgency, knowing that our faithful service to him now and our proclamation of the gospel and the living out of the gospel is what God will use to rescue people from the judgment to come and save them for all of eternity by his grace. Church, God does his best work in our worst moments. There are things happening right now which may appear to the naked eye as his judgment or his abandonment, but they are really deepening our capacity to flourish in God and persevere in life. We don't always get it, but we believe it. And so again, let me say this, don't waste your trial, embrace it. It's effectual. God is working in it and he is working through it. Finally, notice this, don't waste your trial. Entrust it, it's providential. Verse 19 brings this to a full close. And in the most beautiful of ways, here Peter says this, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We suffer according to God's will when we suffer for the sake of righteousness, not for sin or for our own foolishness. At the same time, we accept that our suffering is indeed His will, as He says it is. It is His decree as He continues to govern the world around us. 
Peter also tells us how to endure this suffering. I want you to notice he doesn't command us to be faithful. He reminds us that God is faithful. You see, behind pandemics stands providence. Behind persecution stands providence. At the center of our faith, let me just remind you, lies a bloody cross that saved us from the pandemic of sin. Sin is the greatest pandemic that humanity has ever known. It affected and infiltrated all of creation. And it spread like wildfire in the moment that Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. Sin invaded like an infectious disease where there was no hope and no way of escape, humanly speaking. But what we see in the Bible is that that great pandemic was resolved by God in his providence. That God had planned from the beginning of time to enter into his creation. That God knew that humanity could not come up with a cure no matter how hard they worked, no matter how hard they tried. They could not cross the chasm to get back into the presence of God. So instead, God comes into his creation. He takes upon himself the curse of sin as he hangs upon the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. We see God dealing with the pandemic of sin. We see him saying, I will become sin for them. And God lovingly, out of love for you and me, he gives his life. He sacrifices his own life. He makes full payment on the cross. God, instead of judging us for all of eternity, judges his righteous, perfect, holy son on that tree at Calvary. And as we've seen over the past few weeks in, in Peter, our Savior did not remain in the grave. No, he trampled death. He rose from the grave. The stone was rolled away and our Savior was not there. He rose victorious over sin and death. He becomes the perfect cure to the curse of sin. And the Bible says this, listen, that all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. If you look to Jesus, even now in the midst of this great pandemic of sin, and you see that you can do nothing on your own, but he's done everything for you. If you confess that he is the only way, the truth and the life, that nobody comes to the Father but through him. If you lay down your life and you say, Jesus, take me all of me, forgive my sin, God give me new life in Jesus Christ, then God in his grace today will give you just that. God has solved our greatest problem. And loved ones, that's just a sweet reminder for us today that what we're facing in, in this, this current pandemic is nothing compared to what God has already dealt with. I mean, it pales in comparison. And so, we should continue, as Peter says, to commit or to entrust ourselves to the faithful creator. I love that he chooses that word, to the faithful creator. He, he's reminding us again that God is the one who spoke all of this into existence. He holds all power and all authority. There is nothing that he cannot do, and there is nothing that he will not do for his children. He has come from heaven to earth for us, and he will bring us safely home. The command 
to entrust ourselves to him is in the present tense. And so it doesn't stop just at the moment of salvation. It calls you and I to daily, regularly, repeatedly commit ourselves to God, knowing that he is faithful always and forever. And while we suffer and trust, we continue to do good as his word describes in the scriptures. We live for his glory. We obey him. We serve those and pray for those who persecute us. We love one another and we build up the body of Christ. This is most obviously applicable to trials and suffering for following Jesus. That's the context that Peter has given um, this in. But we can understand that in a broad sense, we suffer and when we suffer well, we reflect Jesus. This in many ways is applicable to all the trials we experience in life, including this present pandemic that we find ourselves in. God is overseeing every part of this trial. He's overseeing every part of your life. Our God is not just sovereign, he is good. That means that he knows what he's doing even when we don't. It means he's always right even when we can't see it or we don't feel it. You know, to entrust it, the, the it is not just the trial. It's about entrusting ourselves. We entrust everything to him. We don't ha try to control any part of our lives. That's what he's calling us to. And when we do that, our God is so kind and faithful to meet all of our needs, to ground our feet upon the rock, Church, though this may be the worst we've seen, this is not the worst it's ever been. Jesus rose from the grave. God has a reliable record of delivering his people through pandemics and through persecution. So whether it's persecution or pandemic, given his promises and his track record, God will protect and sustain his people today through his word and for his glory. Let me remind you about how we can work at this together. Listen, we entrust ourselves when we run to him in faith. We bolster our faith by clinging to all that he says he is in his word. We run to his word daily and we look at his person. We look at his promises and we look at his power. And there again, we see that our faith is strengthened. We entrust ourselves to him in community. We're reminded that Peter is writing to a group of churches. He's telling them that this is not something they are to do alone. We suffer together. We serve one another in the midst of trials. In the midst of this trial and any other that we may face, it's so important, listen, that we are reaching out to one another. We may be self-isolated, but there are so many different means available by which we can still engage with one another's lives. Let me encourage you, even today, to take the time to call a couple people in your sphere of influence within the life of this church. See how they're doing. Ask if they need any help. Maybe take a moment and simply encourage one another in the Lord. And the last thing we do to entrust ourselves to the Lord, our faithful creator, is this, is we pray. We pray. We pray faithfully together. Uh, we pray alone, yes, but we pray together. We seek God's face and we seek God's help. Again, let me encourage you to use your phone or video calls, and we're going to be setting some of this up in the days to come just to be reminded, listen, that we need each other and we can still call upon God together, believing that he is faithful. 
on Sunday, November 3rd, 1918, Francis J. Grimke delivered a timely message in response to the incredible epidemic of the Spanish influenza, influenza that was sweeping across the world and specifically in his city in Washington, D.C. And he made some very astute observations, but one of the things he said was this. He said, God knows what he is doing. His work is not going to suffer. It will rather be a help to it in the end. Out of it, I believe, a great good is coming. All the church, as well as the community at large, are going to be the stronger and better for this season and distress through which we have been passing. Church God is still on his throne. In this trial and every other trial you face, in pandemic or persecution, God is faithful. And through this season of trial, let's not waste it. I am believing in faith that this is a time that God is going to use to strengthen you and me, that God is going to strengthen our church family, that God is going to strengthen the church at large. And I am believing that in this and through this and because of this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to advance in great power for God's great glory. As we close our time together, I can't think of a better way to do it than in intentional prayer you'll notice that there is an option for you at the the bottom of the screen here to click and you can request um, to pray with one of our leaders. It would be a joy for us to be able to do that with you. If you need um, to to put a message in there for somebody to call you, again, we want to serve you and we want to lift up a request before the Lord, believing that He is faithful. But let me encourage you to do this as you close this time this morning together. Let me encourage you, let's not waste this. Take a few minutes once this sermon is over and spend some time with your family or if you're by yourself, just to sit by yourself and take five or ten minutes just to simply call upon God. First, thank God and praise God for His kindness and His grace to you and to me. Pray specifically prayers of supplication, asking God uh, to heal those who are sick. Pray for those who are most susceptible and vulnerable among us. Pray for our governing officials and pray for our healthcare workers. Pray for one another. Let's pray that God uses this to strengthen the church and strengthen our faith so that we might make his name great among the nations. Church, we want you to know that we love you. And if we can serve you in any way, we are here for you. Let's continue to lean into the Lord together. Let me pray for you now. Father in heaven, again, uh, we are grateful for your word and for your spirit. We're grateful, Lord, for how it reminds us of you, our faithful creator. God, we entrust ourselves to you now, uh, believing, God, that you are good and you do good. We love you, Lord, and we know and are grateful that you love us. We pray, Father, that you would bless us now uh, as we go about this week, heal our nation, Um, Lord, strengthen our faith, and advance the gospel for the glory of your great name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll see you uh, next week, church, same time, same place.